0: Episode 23, a frank discussion about our cognitive biases and how they keep us from understanding the Bible correctly. Thinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Well, I'm on a roll here. This is my second uh, podcast to be recorded on this same day, this same chilly day as I sit between two heaters, and uh, I'm having a good time. I wanted to discuss in this episode more about cognitive biases. We've talked about these all along the way from the first episode until now, but a lot of it has been in passing and without really sitting down to um, give it a good thorough look. I ran across this morning in my uh, reconstituted blog uh, at jackpelham.com an article that's um, categorized under religion as well as under character and politics. And it's not exactly a Bible article by any means, and yet it deals so much with how people think that I thought uh, this would be a really good opportunity to sit down and think it through. Uh, As I mentioned in the title of this uh, episode, I think uh, that our cognitive biases keep us from understanding the Bible well uh, in some cases, and so that's definitely worth taking a look at because we want to be ones who can, you know, in the, in the words of Scripture, come let us reason together and uh, also uh, give careful thought to your ways and things like that. Uh, even the first to present his case seems right till another comes along and questions him. Uh, this kind of thing that that we ought to test things, that we ought to think it through. There ought to be a couple of witnesses and not just one, um, that we need to, uh, or as Jesus said, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment uh, instead. Uh, this is a very common problem. And so let me just talk. I'm going to read you an article that I wrote back in 2015 about um, the Freddie Gray uh, Baltimore riots. And um, not because that topic is one that really concerns this uh, podcast, but because it's just such a good example of biases. And, you, and you'll see what I mean. But let me explain uh, right off what a cognitive bias is. Of course, cognitive refers to our thinking, things that deal with cognition. That's the active thinking in the brain, uh, in what, what we call our mind, although you can't put your finger... In an autopsy on the mind. The mind is uh, really more a a theoretical uh, term of what happens in the brain. Uh, And there is not some area of the brain that's called the mind. Uh, So we use that term somewhat loosely, and it seems to work pretty well for us that way. And I say us, like I'm a cognitive scientist. I'm not certainly by trade, although I have read a great deal of cognitive science, particularly with regard to rationality, and that is to whether we see the world as it really is or not. Uh, so anyway, a cognitive bias is a little uh, thinking routine. Uh, suppose you had a computer that was um, programmed anytime that it overheated to send you a message, Saying, hey, your computer's overheating. We're about to shut down if you don't fix this immediately. Well, that would be uh, what some might call a routine. In time this happens, then we want that to happen. Well, our own thinking can get programmed that way or conditioned that way. We can get in the habit of being that way. For example, any time that um, uh, Billy sees an Italian, he says, oh, all Italians are thieves. <laughs> well, no, not Italians. Not all Italians are thieves, although some of them surely are, just like some of every other country people are um, thieves. But uh, Billy has this rule in his head that gets triggered anytime the thought about Italians comes up. And so it's a routine that runs automatically. It's trained this way to run automatically. And when it runs, Billy just runs with it. He doesn't say, now, wait a minute, maybe that's not true. Let me question that. No, it becomes part of his uh, cognitive habit that Billy just runs with this idea. And so I'm going to submit to you that this happens with Christians too. Christians are not immune to this. And uh, in fact, it happens to a great many people. Uh, All kinds of cognitive biases, not just about uh, skin color and uh, ethnic origin and all that but about all manner of things. Uh, biases happen all the time. Uh, for example, uh, I, if the, the bias that would say, if I think it's right uh, as a math problem, then it's right. In other words, my hunch about math is going to be right. So here's an example, a very famous one. If you've studied cognitive science, here's a test question. It goes something like this, and so see how you would answer. And I'm pulling this from memory here. I'm not into my article yet, uh, so the question says this: A bat and a ball sell together for a dollar and ten cents. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball costs. How much is the ball? So let me repeat this for you again: A bat and a ball sell together for a dollar and ten cents. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball costs. How much is the ball? I have uh, given this test question out in multiple choice uh, fashion uh, just because on a, you know online test, uh, how are you going to record it if you don't give them multiple choice? So um, the, I can tell you from my reading that about 80% of the people answer that the ball is 10 cents. Uh, this actually is incorrect. It cannot be true. We can test that question or that answer very easily. If the ball is 10 cents and the bat is a dollar more than that, uh, that would make the bat be a dollar and 10 cents. And then you add that back to the ball, we get a dollar 20. But you're told in the givens of the problem that the two sell together for a dollar 10. So it cannot be right. It turns out that the ball. Must be five cents. The bat's a dollar more than five cents, so that makes it a dollar five. Add them together. There's your dollar ten. Now, about eighty percent of people miss this question. And they're certainly capable of following the math. They can what I just explained, they get that every time. I've never had anybody go back and say, no, I, I I hear you, Jack, but I still think that ball is ten cents. Uh everybody gets it once it is explained to them. However, uh they don't get it on their own. They will assume on their own for various reasons that ten cents is the right answer. And there's uh, you know, one reason for that's just the way the presentation goes. It, it again it says a bat and a ball sell together for a dollar ten cents. Uh the ball is a dollar more than the bat's a dollar more than the ball. How much is the ball? So they're used to, you know, a dollar 10. Uh, and so once you get to how much is the ball, uh, you've already said dollar. Well, they want to say 10 again. It's some sort of like poetic rhyming kind of almost. And there's an urge to say 10 cents. Plus, having said the 10, if they choose to add the dollar back to it, then they come to the same total, a dollar 10 but they're just not thinking right about it. And so, uh, why would somebody give that answer and not test it? Well, there's your bias. Uh, There is a problem in the thinking that, oh yeah, this seems right to me. In fact, it came to mind so quickly that the answer is 10 cents, it must be right. It's just a no-brainer. And so the bias goes something like, well, if it's a no-brainer, I must be right. (laughs) Or if it feels like a no-brainer, I must be right. Or if I come up with the answer that quickly, oh, that must be right. Something along those lines is what's going on in the mind when that answer seems uh, right to us. And let me tell you, this is one of the first rationality problems that I came across. And I answered 10 cents. And I uh, showed it to Kay, and she said 10 cents. I showed it to James. He said 10 cents. We all got snookered by it. And uh, (laughs) we all subsequently learned a lot. Uh, about this. This is really one of the first and most basic uh, rationality tests that we've run across. Well, uh, so this shows some biases in how we think. We're conditioned to think, uh, well, it must be easy. Uh, We ought not have to think hard about things like this. We ought not have to check our math. We ought not have to check our interpretation of the question. No, things should just come easy. So Uh, as you can see, there are a lot of little one-liners in there that might be in our habitual thinking that actually can get quite in our way. And we've discussed this a lot about the Bible so far, how people assume things when there's no good reason to make that assumption, yet they assume it anyway, and then they interpret the Bible accordingly. Uh, This happens so much that it is uh, rare not to find it in somebody's Bible work. Uh, These things are so common in our culture, it is very rare. And you think about this, 80% missed that question, and you probably missed it too. 80% in our culture, that's four out of five people walking around on the street today are going to get this wrong. That's a lot of people, 80% of people. Now, this brings to mind a quotation by Dan Gilbert. Uh, who is the author, I believe, of Stumbling on Happiness and some other books. He's a cognitive scientist, and he says, if you're like most people, then like most people, you don't know you're like most people. In other words, we can put a statistic in front of you and say, look, most people get this wrong, and you won't think, oh, wait a minute. Does that mean I would get it wrong? Does that mean I would make this same mistake? And so we tend not to think about our own thinking, uh, even though we should. We have statistical data to show that uh, most people are infected with this or that kind of virus, or not virus, but bias, Uh, although they can act like viruses. They spread from person to person through example and through our speech patterns and through the things we read and hear. Uh, And people adopt them for their own thinking, uh, even though they shouldn't. They should vet them first and realize they're in error. So uh, 80% of people can be like this, but you're pretty sure you're not like this yourself. Well, that is such a huge problem. This is uh, one of the things that leads to hypocrisy. Oh, well, they're violating the Constitution. Yeah, so is your party. Oh, no, I'd really doubt that. I mean, why would my party violate the Constitution? You no, know, that can't be right, Jack. You, you see what I mean? And so, uh, anyway, I what I have here is a story... This is a post that I wrote on May 3rd of 2015 on my blog at jackpelham.com, and it is not primarily about religion. Yet this is so much about religion, and I thought it would be a very good exercise to walk through this today. Uh, The title of it is "This Week in Baltimore: A Showcase of Cognitive Biases," and what the uh, article is. It's a list of my observations over a week of the Freddie Gray incident. And if you recall, uh, Freddie Gray was, I think, shot by cops or died in the back of the van. I don't remember the particulars of the story, although I I settled it then. But uh, many considered it a wrongful death, and um, it raised up the typical, uh, through the dust in the air, of all kinds of uh, strife and common sayings common beliefs common positions and uh, a lot of people of course in a time of uh, tumult will say a lot of things they'll say what's on their mind they'll say what they're conditioned to say and those things are not necessarily rational in fact oftentimes they're irrational and yet they are deeply believed strongly believed unquestioningly believed and uh, so uh, so let me just read you some of this article. I'm, and it consists of 46 examples of biases that I heard or uh, observed in play that week. So here we go. We're going to read a bit, and I'll interrupt as I feel like it in order to um, interject more thoughts. This past week has provided an excellent opportunity to observe people's cognitive biases. The situation in Baltimore has prompted many to show those corrupted mini-programs of thinking that run automatically through their minds. We have seen many various biases at work, such as the following 46 examples. So yes, that's a lot of examples, and yes, we're going to plow through them. So here we go. Number one. Now, and this is, understand the nature of this writing. This is not Jack making assertions about uh, things that are true or false, This is Jack quoting other people or uh, paraphrasing things he's heard other people say. All right. Number one, all blacks are thugs, with the possible exception of those who entertain us by playing sports. Number two, all whites are racist. Again, these are things that uh, people think. Not everybody, but some people. And after 46 of these, you're probably going to find one that you yourself would say, or have said, or frequently said, or are right in the middle of saying today on Facebook. Number three, all police are thugs. Number four, all arrests of blacks by white police are racist acts. Number five, all arrests of blacks by white police are completely justified and proper. Number six, all people who get arrested had it coming. You see how some of these are vying with each other. You know, the, the same person wouldn't necessarily say uh, two of these back to back. Different people who think different ways would say some of these things. Uh, number seven, all protesting is wrong. Number eight, I deserve to be violent and destructive and to steal because I am offended. Number nine, if the police say it, it must be true. Number 10, if it's an attack against us, then it must be unwarranted. Number 11, all criticisms against police are unwarranted. Number 12, the other side can't possibly have a good point to make. Number 13. Even if the other side makes a good point, it cannot possibly weaken my position. Number 14. I am right because of all these facts, and even if it turns out that these aren't the facts at all, I'm still right. Number 15. This is my opinion, and I will not change it. Number 16. All negative issues should be ignored i got to stop and talk about this one right here. A lot of Christians take that passage in uh, Philippians about if anything is excellent or praiseworthy and such and such, think about such things, and they say, okay, that's my policy. I don't think about things that are negative or feel negative or that feel um, too serious or that uh, seem harsh or that make other people uh, cringe. I don't think about those. That passage does not say think only about these things; it just says think about them. You know, be sure that you're thinking about these things. So, in other words, think about the good stuff doesn't mean and don't ever think about the bad stuff. <laughs> so, uh, this one again. Let's see which number. Uh, oh, number sixteen. All negative issues should be ignored. Hmm. Number seventeen. My side's sins are less serious than your side's sins. And let me say, this could be true. You know, it could be that one side commits a murder while the other side litters. And is murder more serious than littering? Well, yes. However, both are self-corrupting things. Uh, The one who litters corrupts himself just as does the one who murders, even though the infractions may not be of like weight. And so... uh, it is serious on both sides, and this particular bias, uh, one wants to justify himself, and I would put justify in quotes there because it doesn't really justify, but one wants to justify himself by saying, well, at least this isn't as bad as what you're doing, right? And so really what this turns into is a shouting match of hypocrisy. Well, yours is worse than mine. No, yours is worse than mine, that sort of thing, and which is foolish on either side. Number 18, you are responsible for what your ancestors did, if it was bad. (laughs) Notice how nobody's saying, hey, uh, your ancestors, let's see, you are of um, Middle Eastern descent, of Persian descent, and your ancestors came up with algebra. And, man, that was fantastic. And can we please give you a bunch of money, you know, a few million dollars for what your ancestors did We'd like to make reparations uh, to you for that. Uh, nobody does that. And also, Christians don't get mad when somebody uh, prejudges in a positive way. Man, you're such a great teacher. Well, you're judging. They don't get mad at that, do they? But if you say, well, you're a lousy teacher. They say, you're judging me. Well, yeah. And if I said you were great, you wouldn't have had a problem with me judging you. You see? So it's, uh, things are messed up, right? Okay, so going on here, uh, let's see. Number 18 was, you are responsible for what your ancestors did if it was bad. Number 19, you are responsible for what people of your same skin color are doing now if it is bad. So that's, you know, lumping everybody all together based on skin color. Uh, 20, Because your skin color is different from mine, you are responsible for what is happening to people of my skin color. 21. I am not responsible for what the government does during my watch as a citizen, overseer, or voter. There's a lot of that going on. Well, if you're not responsible, Mr. Citizen, who is? You know, who's running this thing, right? Uh... Isn't it supposed to be a citizen run country? And number 22. If people have been charged, they must be guilty. 23. If people have been charged by someone who has an interest in the case, they must not be guilty. 24. Any wrongdoing against a person of my skin color is the result of racism. 25. The black cops who were in charge of Freddie Gray's death were exercising racism too. Th- that one was particularly um, surprising to find uh, that, you know, some wanted to paint the, and not all, mind you, but some wanted to paint the whole Freddie Gray thing as uh, just an open and shut case of racism. Oh, well, how do you explain the black cops involved in his death? Well, they're racist too. Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't really fit the pattern, does it? <laughs> so, you know, people end up getting backed into a corner of making stupid arguments and not being willing to say, yeah, that is kind of stupid, isn't it? I mean, that, that doesn't work. I, I shouldn't have said that, as Hagrid would say. Oh, let's see, where were you? Um, number 26, whatever the government does will be the right thing. 27, whatever the government does will be the wrong thing. Number 28, everything the media says is wrong. Number 29, everything the media says is right. Uh, A lot of this, by the way, is abuse of absolute terms. Somebody says all this or every that or you're always late. No, he's actually late 32.3% of the time and he's on time the rest of the time right? That's different from always late. It's irresponsible when we abuse um, absolute terms like that, absolute language. Number 30, everything that my favorite news channel says is right and everything that yours says is wrong. Again, that's, those are absolute terms, everything. 31, if it deeply offends me, it must be more important than issues that do not deeply offend me. Number 32, law and order is more important when it comes to keeping the public in line than it is when it comes to keeping government and law enforcement in line. Think about that. You know, somebody wants law and order. Well, what for? Well, I want it for this. Well, what about the other thing? Nah, not so much. I don't mind if the government or law enforcement is unruly. I don't mind if they cheat. I just want the people not cheating. Or, Uh, The converse, number 33. Law and order is more important when it comes to keeping government and law enforcement in line than when it comes to keeping the public in line. And of course, you know, we have uh, people who uh, want to riot and be lawless uh, in protest of what they claim is bad police or government behavior. Well, isn't that rich? Like, we're going to go behave badly because... We're accusing you of behaving badly, so you know that's obviously uh, messed up thinking. It is double-minded in Bible terms. It's hypocritical, also in Bible terms. It's a double standard. That's more pop, you know, modern psychology kind of talk. Number thirty-six: Those people should overcome all their biases, but it is not necessary for my people to overcome all all our biases. 37, I pretty much understand how all my people think. (laughs) Number 38, I pretty much understand how all your people think. Notice again, a couple of things here. One is the the absolute term all. And yeah, the person who was saying this is, indeed they're saying, well, I pretty much understand it. Uh, But there's also a thing in cognitive science, it's called... um, um, oh, let's see, like a convention bias, um, or consensus bias, that's what it is, that where we overestimate uh, the, uh, the, uh, the amount to which, the degree to which other people agree with us and such, we think we have a better handle on how people are than we really do, and these answers that I understand, all your people or all my people, that is indeed um, an overestimation of one's understanding. It's also... Uh, an overestimation of uh, how well agreed people are, or it's at least close to that. Number 39, it is wrong for you to rush to judgment where I do not agree with that judgment, but it is not wrong for me to rush to judgment on other issues. Number 40, no matter how much they say, my opponents have but one point and it's necessarily wrong. You know, this is so common for somebody to want to lump everything you say together into one basket as if it's only one point that you're making and to not realize that actually you're making multiple points, each of which needs to be dealt with separately on its own merits. Uh, Number 41, this is my probably my favorite ever statement of a bias. If I were wrong about any of this, I would know it. Obviously, that is an overestimation of one's own knowledge and ability, uh, skills, wisdom, and so forth. Number 42, if I'm wrong about any of this, I'm less wrong than you are, so I deserve to maintain my position. Hmm. That's that's like kids playing go fish at seven years old and making up rules as they go, right? Uh, Number 43, if I admit on the record that any of these biases are wrong... Then I show my fair-mindedness, and I earn the right to continue to operate as if I believed in them anyway. Now, this is particularly twisted. Well, yeah, I admitted my bias. I mean, you know, we all have biases. Okay, then cut it out. No, I'm going to continue with my biases. But at least I am open-minded, and you're not. This sort of thing. What a crazy and dubious um, distinction to make for oneself. Well, I'm biased, but at least I admit it. You know, this brings to mind, I have one friend who uh, frequently debates with people online uh, concerning political things. And he will say this about it. And he is, um, if he's a believer in God, he is not a very uh, well-developed one. But he will say, look, I'm I'm a worm. I I admit it. I'm a wretch. I, I totally admit it. I'm not trying to act like I'm better than you are. And he thinks that this gives him an upper hand in a debate. But I would say to him, well, if you realize that you are a wretch and a worm, why don't you then change those behaviors and become unwretched and unwormy? Uh, So that sort of undermines his position that he thinks uh, gives him a strong point from which to debate to debate or to argue but it's really quite a weak one. he's saying well i'm this way and i'm not going to change uh but hey look i'm willing to admit i'm this way so aren't i great for admitting it you know that's kind of strange okay let's see number 44 we're almost done here with this list whatever i thought before this whole baltimore mess just confirms it this one is uh I think very common. Uh, You're already concerned about how the society is going, whatever's going on, no matter which side you're on of things, as if there are only two sides. But uh, then something else happens, you're like, oh, great. It's more of the same thing. Well, um, maybe, but not necessarily. Not everything is of the same flavor as the things that happened before. Uh, and so this this is a confirmation bias. This is where you're saying, well, yeah, whatever new information, I'm just going to consider only the parts of it that tend to confirm what I already believe. And I'm not going to look more carefully to see whether there may be any disconfirming parts of this that would argue against what I already believe. Uh, for example, uh, the black cops that were involved in Freddie Gray's uh, death uh, through whatever. Is it negligence? Is it, uh, you know, uh, deliberate wrongdoing? Whatever uh, the truth of the matter would turn out to be. Uh, it messes up the whole racism thing somewhat when we find there were black cops involved, too. The person who wants to say it's all racist. no, wait a minute. This could just be negligence or this could just be these are evil people who enjoy seeing somebody else suffer or these are negligent people who don't who are not willing to do their job with due diligence and take care of somebody in their charge, it could be more things than just racism. However, the one who brought the racism to the fight wants to hang on to that, and so they're willing then to try to explain away the black cops who are involved, uh, because it's sort of somebody told me once if you're ever in a in a brawl and somebody uh, brings a chain with them and and this is uh just conversation I've never been in a brawl uh, nor one with the chain mind you but uh that they psychologically that person is going to rely heavily on that chain and uh, they brought it they will fight to keep it so that if you can get one hand on their chain uh they <laughs> said you can beat them mercilessly with your other hand while they're using both of their hands to try to get their chain back and so no I've never tested this in battle. Uh, it seemed, uh, fairly plausible to me at the time. I noticed it's the same with the stick too. I was in my son's, um, Taekwondo class some years ago and one of the assistant uh, instructors had brought a bow staff and was showing me some with it. And I said, how hard is it for somebody to get that from you? And he said, Oh, it, it would never happen. And, uh, I said, so even if they get a hand on it, he said, no, you can break their grip easily. I said, well, can I try? And so, I decided, and I don't know who, why, I had this in mind, but it seemed to work. I grabbed the end of his stick with one hand, and I decided I was going to keep a firm grip on the stick, but uh, with my hand, but not to tense up the whole arm so that my arm was rigid. And so I said, okay, go ahead. <laughs> and he twisted and jerked his stick or whatever and I still maintained the grip and he did it again <laughs> and I think a third time and couldn't break my grip. And uh, you could tell by the look on his face he was quite surprised that this had not ever happened before. And so I think the thing was uh, I had got this from some uh, Kung Fu friends who believed in a soft system where uh, you're not all rigid w- when you make a strike or, or you know make a move. And so that actually tended to work pretty well. So if you ever need to know how to grab somebody's bow staff. But uh, just imagine him in a fight thinking he could break my grip on his stick. And, of course, and I am no martial artist, by the way. I'm just fascinated by it. Uh, so if somebody who knew how to do that also knew how to kick and punch, they could get in several good shots at the guy while he's hanging on to this uh, bow staff and his belief that he could easily get his stick out of the control of anybody who grabbed it. So I hope that makes sense, I hope that doesn't seem too uh too off point because it's actually quite on point at least in a metaphorical way. People come into a, a intellectual fight with something on their mind and the something is wrong or it's not as right as they think it is and they will very often fight to keep control of that thing. Don't admit anything, <laughs> you know, admit to no fault uh when actually we're often frequently at fault in things and we could uh admit it and learn and grow and move on Uh, let's see uh okay number 45 people of differing skin color will necessarily have differing characters the two uh the two are genetically linked okay this one's a little bit uh convoluted the way it's stated but the idea is that no if you have different skin color from me well, we're going to be different kinds of people. Uh, it just goes with the skin color. Um, it's unavoidable. That's just how it is. Well, that's hogwash, of course. Uh, people of all skin colors can be like Jesus, uh, for example. In fact, aren't there a few very famous passages in the Bible about neither Jew nor Greek and so forth and so on? Uh, yes, there are. And then number 47, 46, rather. This is the last one. Racism is the fundamental problem in this whole mess. Well, I'm going to submit that racism is not the fundamental problem in the Freddie Gray incident or in any other. It is our unwillingness to uh, base our thinking on reality, no matter what the situation. In fact, a lot of it is look, I've got my preferred uh, paradigms, my preferred way of looking at the world. And I don't care what you say. I don't care what the facts are. This is how I'm going to carry on. So I go on. I'm going to read a little bit of this article. It's just a couple of paragraphs, and then we'll discuss further. The fundamental problem in this whole mess is that the American public stinks at thinking. That's quite unapologetic, isn't it? It is poor at logic and probability. It is loaded with biases, such as the ones listed above, and even worse, it does not like to think, so it avoids reflecting on these things, cutting off nearly any chance to learn something. That is the sad state that leads to all kinds of inhumanity and injustice, including, but not limited to, racism. This is what leads churches to continue in practices that violate the facts of the very Bible they laud as the truth. This is what leads people to support political parties that do not keep the promises they make. This is what leads people to put off problems rather than to solve them. Right now, lots of people are mad at one another uh, or at other people because of the racism being, and racism in quotes, being exercised by those other people. This is not the foundation, however, not the core of the issue. As it turns out, people of all skin color are vulnerable to this sort of cognitive laziness and error, and skin color is just one of many topics in which this lousy thinking raises its ugly head. Meanwhile, however, many are pounding away at racism as a fundamental evil that needs to be solved, and they're doing it without having solved in themselves the cognitive bias and error that we all must guard against if we want to be completely rational and honest people. We are all prone to cognitive error, and yet we do not have to make any particular error. I'm going to read that sentence again. And this idea, by the way, I get from Keith Stanovich, I believe near the end of his book, uh, What Intelligence Tests Miss. Uh, We are all prone to cognitive error, and yet we do not have to make any particular error. We can learn to do better. We do not have to be biased and stubborn people. No, that's not something we're doomed to be. That's something we choose to be. To solve or to correct a problem is better than to persist in it. But he who hacks at the branches rather than at the root is wasting his time. Now that first line, to solve or correct an error, is better than to persist in it. That reminds me, that's coming from something I read from Thomas Jefferson, which I can't quote. And the second part about hacking at the branches rather than at the root, this is a Thoreau quote about um, for every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there is but one hacking at the root. And so that is, uh, that's the article that I have there. Now, let's reflect a little bit before I close. How does this affect us when we read the Bible? Remember the thing I mentioned early about Dan Gilbert, his quotation, if you're like most people, then like most people, you don't know you're like most people. As I read this list of biases, these are things, some of them are things people actually said. Some are my observations about how they must have been thinking uh, based on what they said or even though they didn't put it in these words. And some of it is just logical you know, conjecture based on uh, other things they say. But as I read this long list of items, did you find anything in there that... Uh, that you uh, did you find it familiar? Did you think, oh yes, I've heard people say that, or I know people think that? Well, yes, okay. Well, how can these kinds of things be so widespread in our culture, and yet that doesn't typify your thinking at all? You know, how can so many people get colds, but you never get a cold? Well, that would make you really special, uh, physically. And, so, and maybe you are really special, but wouldn't that be rare? Well, yeah, that would be rare. Okay. Well, how do so many people get fat and you don't? If you don't get fat, you must be doing something different. You must be rare in that way. Okay, sure. Uh, now, when 80% of people miss the bat and ball question, and which means you probably missed it too, then we can see, oh, well, you're not special in that regard. You're like four out of five people. So here's a question. Well, four out of five people miss a bunch of other questions in rationality tests, too. Would you miss those also? Oh, no, no. Uh, Just this one. Just the bat and ball. That would be my only departure from reality in these tests. I'm sure I feel certain of it, Jack. (laughs) If I would be wrong about those other things, I would know in advance that I would be wrong about them. And since I don't feel I would be wrong about them, uh, there's no way I would be wrong about them. So this is an aberration. This one question, I got it wrong. Sure, I admit that. My bad. But no, I wouldn't be wrong about anything else that I believe. Well, I believe that um, the contrary is the truth. I believe that people are wrong about uh, many things. In fact, this was my big revelation in 2012 after I started to read Cognitive Science And some of these test questions, uh, where uh, unlike reading the Bible, somebody may misinterpret a passage and not be able to show quickly that they have got it wrong. But in the case of these rationality test questions, they're designed to be able to show you quickly that you've got them wrong. You understand the difference in the Bible, uh, Some of it we may have to wait until we meet God for him to say, you know that passage over there, well, you got that wrong. Oh, really? Well, what's the right way? And then it has to be explained to us. Well, you know, in the bat and ball question, you can sit down and do the math and figure it out, and everybody can see for himself uh, what the right answer must be uh, by deduction. But um, what if you've already proven that you've missed a few? Is it right to assume that you're thinking about everything else must be pretty good, more or less. Well, no, that's ridiculous. We need to learn to check ourselves often and to learn what are our common errors. Oh, yeah, I I made the same mistake here. I had made previously in that other passage. I should have been more on the lookout for that. You see? And so, and there are multiple errors that people commonly make. I don't mean to get into a list of those today. But the point is, that we owe it to ourselves and to God and to the Scriptures to try to interpret them rightly. But what if we come with all these biases? Uh, for example, oh well, you know that's uh, that's Old Testament. Uh, that doesn't it. We don't really need to dig into that. Really. So you know that God didn't uh, didn't plant anything in the Old Testament to be discovered by people like you. Or, oh, well, you know, this passage, this is Paul talking all heavy about their sin. And I just don't, um, you know, that's, I just, I don't really get into those passages. That's just not spiritually healthy for me. Oh, why not? Well, I subscribe to the um, paradigm that says, whatever is true and admirable and praiseworthy, we should think about those things. Really? Where do you find that in the Bible? Oh, it's in one of Paul's letters. Okay. So the same Paul who also thought about these very serious, you know, deadly serious matters of sin and repentance, uh, you took part of what he said and used that to, quote, justify, end quote, uh, disregarding other things the same guy wrote? Oh, yeah, I do. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to submit that that is irrational. That is a special pleading, right? Well, Paul said this. I like this. Well, actually, no, you're twisting what he said. It says, think about these things. It doesn't say, don't think about other things. And yet you're assuming the latter. Uh, and And you're playing that game in order to not think about the rest of what he wrote. And Paul was a pretty heavy hitter when it comes to sin and repentance. And the consequences thereof. And so you see this kind of mind games people play to their own destruction so often. They walk away with a view of Jesus that has very little to do with the whole set of information that we have about Jesus and his teachings. And the same with Paul and the other apostles. They they play similar mind games. Uh, they may not know it's a game, mind you. They may not be doing it for fun. But they've been taught these twisted ways to look at things, uh, which are often twisted ways to not look at things, too. In other words, ways to avoid looking at other things that are in the Bible. And I was, I've been thinking through my own position here, like, OK, well, what's Jack doing? Why are we having this podcast? Uh, again, you know, Jack is not a prophet. And I've so not been called by God or commissioned by God to do this. I think Jack is what we all should I think Jack is doing what we all should try to do, and that is to make sense of this colossal book, which is really a collection of a whole bunch of other books, uh, numbering at least 66. And I'm talking about in the Protestant version. If you look in the Catholic Bible, and I'm not a Catholic, but if you look there, there's more books, and if you look beyond that into the ancient Near Eastern. Writings, there are more still that uh, need to be considered if you really want to understand what's in the Bible fully. Uh, And you do this at your own risk. Well, which of us loving God and loving Jesus should not be interested in learning these things? And yet there are so many excuses so readily available not to give any thought whatsoever and we've talked about this before. The the one person likes to look only at the red letters, which are almost all in the New Testament. And I'm talking, of course, about a red-letter Bible where the words of Jesus are in red letters. Uh, okay. And then somebody else, well, they'll read the New Testament, but not the Old. Somebody else, well, re- they'll read the New and the Old, but not what's in the Apocrypha uh, or the other extra-biblical books, you know, the... Uh, so-called pseudepigraphica, the uh, pseudepigrapha, pardon me, I mix up the word pseudepigrapha, which means that the false graph, the false, uh, the false signature, meaning books that are not written by the people that it says they're written by. And while we're on that topic, I think some books get falsely categorized in that way. For example, uh, the book of Enoch, one Enoch, many will say is pseudepigraphical, pseudop- <laughs> uh, which means it was not really written by Enoch. And they'll say, you say, how do you know that? And they'll say, oh, it's second century BC or maybe early third or late third, uh, meaning closer to the second than to the fourth. And uh, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, that's the style of the writing. We can tell. Uh, okay. Well, let me ask you a question. Does not the book say that it was written by Enoch? Well, yes, it does. But we know that's not true. Why? Well, I already told you it's because it it appears by the style of writing to be late uh, or in second century B.C., roughly. Uh, Okay. Well, but it says Enoch wrote it. Yeah, it does. And doesn't it also say it was uh, for a a later time, a time to come much later? Yes, it says that. Hmm. And doesn't it also say that it was to be sealed up? Well, yeah, it does say that. But we know from the style of writing that, um, you know, it's from the 2nd century B.C. And Enoch, of course, lived way, way earlier than that. So it cannot be Enoch. Okay, so you're telling me that it couldn't have been Enoch writing about a much later time and was sealed up and then was unsealed in the 2nd century B.C., where it was translated from the original language into what was then modern languages, such as Greek, where the style of it appears to be 2nd century B.C. Greek. And then there's no answer. Now, it's very funny, because the book of Daniel, uh, he was also told to seal up that book, and that book made it in our Bibles. And here's a question for you. How could that book be in our Bibles if it had not been unsealed between the time it was written and now? If it was still under lock and key somewhere and uh, secreted away, hidden, we wouldn't be reading the book of Daniel, would we? And yet nobody says, well, this is uh, pseudepigraphical. Daniel didn't really write this book, you see. So there's a lot of bad reasoning that goes on with these things, and it's passed on uh, by scholars to preachers and teachers who pass it on to their congregations. And people say, oh, yeah, you know, the book of uh, one Enoch is pseudepigraphical. And, and that settles the matter. They will never think twice about it. They'll never read it to see uh, you know, what's in there. Somebody tells me years ago, well, the cosmology in one Enoch is obviously not related to real-world cosmology. Therefore, I can discount the whole book. Really? Uh, so you're assuming that the guy was trying to tell you how the stars and planets all line up and that he's wrong about that. Therefore, he must be an idiot or smoke and crack or something like that. And, of course, they wouldn't put it in that words, those words. But, uh, yeah, that was the answer. Well, Okay. Uh, What they didn't do, of course, is to consider, oh, perhaps he was writing metaphorically of something. And you haven't figured out what that is, because you have a bias that if he's going to mention stars, it must be literal. You see? It could be that you brought a bias into this. And on and on this goes. This whole question with, oh, is this passage meant to be understood literally? Literally. Uh, Is it a metaphor? Is the person using literal terms about literal things? But he's talking about non-literal things by use of those terms, as we do, for example, when we say that uh, Sandra Bullock is a star. Well, nobody believes that she is a literal star, although the word star literally refers to the literal things in the sky that we see at night. But everybody knows how the word's being used and nobody second guesses it. Are you saying that she is a, um, a heavenly body there, like made of uh, compacted gases that are burning or in fusion? Well, of course not. Nobody asks that question. Uh, nobody questions the language. Yet when you get it in the Bible, some people will see that and say, oh, see, it says star. If it didn't mean star, it wouldn't say star. And this is the kind of biased view that they take of the scriptures as if God himself had appeared to them one day and said, Now, listen, everything in the Bible is literal. There is nothing figurative. So you can read everything at its plain meaning and be certain that you have got it just right. Uh, And of course, if that's going to be your position, then when you get to John, what is it, 15, where Jesus says to his apostles, I am the vine, you are the branches then naturally you would expect to see that Jesus had rough bark all over him and that the apostles were attached to him, growing out of him, and that they had leaves on them. Because that's what a real vine and real branches look like, is it not? So obviously, uh, not all of the Bible is literal. And obviously, not all of it is figurative. And you have to actually use your brain when you're reading, if you want to interpret it correctly. But suppose you have all of these pre-programmed mini routines that run. And uh, you can say, oh, look, uh, this passage reminds me of, oh, uh, my, my church. Uh, therefore, this must be about my church. Oh, no, actually, when that passage was written, your church was nowhere in view. This was a couple of thousand years prior to your church. Uh, this is not about your church. Oh, well, this passage reminds me of how I feel sometimes in the mornings when such and such happens. Okay, that's nice, but this passage is not about that. This passage was written to somebody else a long time ago about something else, and it meant what it meant then. It wasn't written to be some magic eight ball for you. Oh, (laughs) as Tom Smothers would say, that changes everything. So uh, perhaps I've, I've said enough now about uh, biases and the way that we bring them to the table of Bible study and don't realize that we're like a lot of other people who have bias problems and that we need to get rid of that too and start to think clearly again. Um, you know, I talked uh, in the previous episode just a few minutes ago about the Matthew 27 a mass resurrection and uh, let me say some about bias, about our, our thinking dispositions, and more about this idea of abandoned trails. You're a good little Christian. You're reading a Bible. Do-de-do-de-do. You're reading along. I'm, I'm so good. I'm reading my Bible. Yay me, right? And then you come across this, uh, oh, wow. A bunch of people were raised up from the dead. There's two whole verses about it. And so then you go, oh, do de do do And you go walking along and you totally forget about it. You, you, you have found the trailhead there. Wow, I really should look into this, a diligent person might think. But you're like, nope, do do And you go along your way and you never look into it at all. Well, what in the world are you doing? How can you leave this trail of investigation unexplored, unexamined, unanalyzed? You're not going to go looking. You're not going to ask questions. You're not going to check commentaries, although they're not always helpful like you might hope. And sometimes they are. Uh, But you're just not going to lift a finger to get into it. And so you leave these major mysteries in your very own religion, and you don't look into them you don't leave you don't settle things you you prefer to leave things unsettled this is your cognitive disposition this is your way of living oh that's uh that's merely interesting jack but not of core importance we've talked about that before well who says what's of core importance and what's not right We've looked into that and the fallacious answers that people have about it. So uh, this is, of course, my constant frustration, uh, just trying to get people to discuss the Bible, to have a free and open and open-ended discussion that you know, could run for years if need be. Again, I refer in my mind to the uh, discussion from John Steinbeck's East of Eden about the Hebrew word temshel in Genesis 4. The word uh, thou mayest, uh, sin is crouching at your door and he desires to have you or to master you, but thou mayest overcome it. And uh, the guys in that story studied for many years before deciding what that word must mean, that they had finally figured it out, what it had to mean, uh, and were able to put aside the other options. Well, when it comes to this Matthew 27 thing, how many people out there have been working on this for years trying to figure it out? to figure out what this must mean. We know this could be this or that or the other thing. Okay, well, let's work on, see if we can rule out any of that. And that's what I've been trying to do. And I'm not telling you that, oh, I'm absolutely certain that my my interpretation of it is correct. But the thing is, I have an interpretation of it from my own work and you don't. In fact, if you, and again, I'm not speaking to everybody. I hope that there's some of my audience who have done this work, but I know Uh, generally, that it's very unlikely that many would have done it. So uh, when I say this, I'm not trying to abuse absolutes. I'm uh, trying to make a general point. If you have not looked into it, you don't know one way or the other, yet you probably have in your mind the common excuses that preachers make. Well, this passage here, fascinating as it is, uh, just goes to show that other miracles were being done to highlight the great miracle of Jesus' own resurrection. That's your typical fare. You'll hear people just sort of hand wave this passage into oblivion, uh, exonerating themselves from ever needing to look into it and find out what really happened there. What does that mean? What is, how does that shake out doctrine-wise for us? Because uh, it's very uncomfortable. If you had a first resurrection in um, 30 AD or so, Because uh, whatever that 1,000 years means to you, that starts that clock ticking between then and a second resurrection, which was supposed to be, quote, a 1,000 years, end quote, later. So, uh, well, that's, no, Jack, that's too scary. That means we'd have to figure that out. (laughs) Did something happen in 1030 A.D. with the second resurrection or not? And was the 1,000 years literal or not? Well, what if it wasn't? Well, it could have been... 2,000 years, sure, it also could have been like two years. Oh, no, 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 I could see it meaning 2,000, but not two, like, okay, well, 2,000 years is 100% off because it's twice 1,000 years, right? So it's 100% off of what what it actually says, right? Okay, well, two years would be like, um, what, two-tenths of a percent, off. You understand what I'm saying? So how can you rule out the one? Well, we just know it wouldn't say a thousand years if it didn't mean a really long time. Oh, so that's your interpretation of what a thousand years means a really long time. Okay. So it could be like 500 billion these years. Sure. That sounds good. Okay. Well, then why is your preacher preaching that Jesus is going to come to, you know, probably this week? And if not this week, maybe next year. Why are you teaching that it's imminent? In fact, for that matter, why did those guys back then teach it was imminent <laughs> if it was actually a couple of billion to years off? Well, it's a mystery, bro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, it's the appeal to mystery. I want to hand wave it. I don't want to deal with it. I want to not have to have an answer, even though I'm willing to assume some answers. Right, these, this is all bias. This is cognitive bias. This is pre-programmed conditions that I run routinely, automatically. I don't have to decide to run them. It's just by habit that they're already programmed into me. And these are not my own biases. I although I used to have some of these, uh, and have since learned better. Uh, but the point here is that this is a lot of how discussion about the Bible goes with people. You're not really discussing with the person. You're discussing with their pre-programmed biases. And so you ask the right question, and then ding, it, it brings up this pre-programmed thing. Oh, when, that, when those words are asked of me, I'm supposed to say this. And you get back some dumb junk that the guy heard from the preacher, or from some book. Uh, but has he vetted it himself? Oh, no. In fact, he's proud he read the book. That was enough vetting for him. He didn't go check into it to see if the conclusion drawn by the author was accurate or not. You see? This is so like the Mark Twain quote about, uh, and I so can't get this right, in politics and religion. Oh, I I know what I actually can do. I can click right here on my little link with quotations and pull it up. This, I'm so proud of myself. I can actually do something right. Okay, here it is from WikiQuotes. And this is uh, Mark Twain. He says, in religion and politics, people's beliefs and convictions are in almost every case. Notice he doesn't go uh, with absolute language, but says almost uh, they are in almost every case gotten at second hand and without examination from authorities who have not themselves examined the questions at issue, but have taken uh but have taken them at second hand from other non examiners whose opinions about them are not worth a brass farthing, and a brass farthing of course, is an exceedingly worthless coin and this is from his autobiography nineteen o seven and that is indeed same, the same problem today. People do not examine things for themselves. They just come with what they've heard from others and never checked out. And wouldn't they be surprised to find out the others didn't check it out either? And you track it all the way back to its source, who was some teacher, preacher, you know, professor, whatever, who said it someday in a speech and it's been quoted ever since. And so uh, if you know that most people are like this, do you also know that that means you're probably like this yourself, or at least sometimes you're like this yourself? And so I think we all need some sense of surrender saying, okay, some sort of healthy view of self that says, okay, look, I'll tell you what I think about this passage, but to be fair, uh, I'm not sure how well vetted my opinion is. So, okay, I'll be open and tell you what I think, but... um, You should take it with a grain of salt. In fact, I kind of feel embarrassed that I've believed this for this many decades now but can't tell you um, any good reasons that I believe it. (laughs) Right, so look, I think we're a mess. Our culture is a mess. We could be more diligent about these things if we wanted to. Uh, We really could. And I don't mean like even the whole country, the United States, uh, even a like your denomination could decide to change its culture in a certain way for the improvement or even a local independent congregation could do this or just a group of buddies sitting around drinking coffee, talking about the Bible could decide to have their own little subculture with these uh, certain virtues. And so uh, this is, should not strike us as new Uh, and this is not all bias stuff. If I were to ask you for instance, uh, name a culture that's known for being lazy you might have uh, some group come to mind uh, and it may be a good reputation, I mean, a, a good stereotype or it may be a bad one. Uh, but uh, if I were to say, oh, well, can you name me a culture who's known for their excellent craftsmanship? Well, if you're like me, maybe Germany comes to mind or the Swiss clocks, the something like that. Or name me one, name me a culture that's known for... Uh, high diligence as employees. Well, what comes to my mind immediately is Japan, uh, how it's part of the national culture there. I think, assuming that I've been uh, well-advised or well-informed, I think uh, to be on time for work, they stop and exercise at work. They want to stay sharp and and well, uh, physically fit and such. And so this is a big part of their culture. It would be shameful to be a bad employee, Uh, Some may tell you, well, they actually make too much of this. It's too big uh, a priority in their culture and to an extreme. Oh, maybe that's so. I don't know one way or the other. But the the point is, uh, is it true that a certain national group could be better at a thing than other national groups are? Well, oh, yeah, I think that's pretty obvious. You know, the United States knows how to build a good road Some of these other countries, you look at these crazy YouTube videos of their traffic intersections just going nuts and it's just uh, chaotic. They don't have a good system in place. And so it is certainly true that cultures can decide some of their paradigms and say, Okay, we we want to be good at this here. We're going to invest in this and teach our people this and learn how to do well with it. Uh, So I hope you understand what I'm saying. Could it be? that a culture of believers, however small a society it could be, maybe just your family, maybe just you, maybe your whole congregation, uh, could it be that a group decided, you know, we think this is important. We want to set this ideal and move toward it as a uh, an axiom of our group. Well, yes, we could. And so, you know, this thing was going on in the New Testament in Acts As you read about uh, Paul and his missionary journeys, they pass through Thessalonica. It goes well. They come through Berea. And wow, did that go well. In fact, that even got mentioned by Luke, the author, who says, uh, and this is me from memory, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because uh, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So they actually went and vetted the things that were put to them. And the Bible, uh, Luke, more specifically, uh, commends this behavior in the Bible. And, uh, you know, think not a whole lot of people get commended in the Bible. So this is a, a rare time. And it was about a class of people. It was not just about one person among that Berean congregation. Do you understand what I'm saying? That particular locality had this paradigm that was a really good one this value, this virtue was really good, and it got commended in Scripture as really good. And so what if we were like that? What if we were examiners and not non-examiners? What if we were the type to say, I don't know, let me check that out, or, well, I think this might be it, but really, I need to go check that out. What if we did that as a matter of habit rather than just uh, assuming that we know or pretty much know? So you, you come reading about this first resurrection, like, well, you know, Jack, if if that was as important as you say it is, it would have been written about other times. And not just that one passage of two verses. Really? Okay, then I'll make a note. And please tell me where to find this rule of reading Scripture in the Bible. Surely this is written down. <laughs> this great wisdom you have, this rule of hermeneutics, that if it's really important, it'll be written about more than once. I do, by the way, want to... Uh, start compiling a list or find my previous lists of um, Bible things that are only mentioned once, I believe you would be impressed by the list and would start to think differently. In fact, this too is a bias, is it not? It's a, it's a pre-programmed way of thinking, a habitual thing that runs automatically. You know, that only appears then there once. So let's move on. Let's talk about something else. Well, that's just silly. It's short-sighted. And I believe it's rather foolish, although that is a very popular way of thinking or rather a very popular way of not thinking, not looking into it because it's going to be hard. Well, yeah. But, you know, what do you think God's going to say? Two people show up having died and God says to one of them, hey, um, I see you have spent a lot of time studying the Bible and trying to work the puzzle. And the other one, hey, I see that you uh, went to church all your life, but hardly ever looked into anything on your own volition. Which of the two do you think he would be uh, more congratulatory of, to end with the preposition? What do you think? So uh, there's some things for you to think about. These uh, Freddie Gray weak biases that I notice. Obviously, they're not all about religion directly, and yet uh, it's the same kind of shoddy mental work that you'll find in people everywhere. It should not surprise you when it walks into the church because that's what people are like unless they have uh, matured beyond that. And so here's some things for you to think about. I hope that you find this useful And uh, I hope some of it's convicting. It certainly should be to all of us. And again, um, I will make mention of some little article I just wrote somewhere that says the road to hypocrisy is a short one. And that is, even if you've got these things on straight and you've matured enough to be consistent with thinking well about things, all it takes is one negligent moment to find yourself in the land of hypocrisy. Oh, I've been speaking out against unconstitutional government, and yet I just agreed with a friend, uh, you know, in the spur of the moment, when they suggested that there ought to be a blank, you know, whatever unconstitutional program. Uh, All it takes is a moment of being not diligent to find yourself agreeing with or acting in favor of something that uh, is against the very principles that you generally espouse. And so, again, here, okay, fine, I've been working for a few years on this, but I can, in just a minute's time, find myself uh, thinking something that's unprovable or undefensible uh, about the Scriptures or some interpretation of the Scriptures. So we have to constantly be vigilant about these things This is so not me saying I've got all this figured out and you people are stupid. It's like, no, I've got this thing somewhat figured out and boy, is it a lot of work to keep on the straight and narrow. And so that's the point. I hear my heater coming on. That's my cue that I had better wrap up this uh, episode. I've enjoyed this a lot. I hope you find it useful too. And thanks for joining in.